everyone, this is Matt Kamen, your phenomenal, amazing, ridiculously handsome host of Nonprofit on the Rocks, which is our every other week show bringing together happy hour conversations with nonprofit leaders directly to you. And with us, as always, hopefully you guys enjoy her company, is Ashley Watterson, our also fantastic, wonderful, and beautiful producer. Thank you, Matt. Yes, we both do not have faces for radio. So it is sad that we are in this medium where we are so underutilized. I agree. I think people should see us when we're doing it. We need more video. We do. We do. And we've talked about this before, and I understand HR is going to get on my case, but because you like to go topless so often, you know, I feel like (laughs) that in and of itself will get us more viewers, if anything, right? (laughs) We have been talking about that as a way to grow our audience. So it's, you know, it's a discussion that's in the works. What do we think that your husband, Mark, Hmm. about that? What would he say? He's, you know, Mark, he's so old school. He's all like, oh, I don't want my wife going naked in public. Uh, uh, Doesn't he want your job to be guaranteed? Do you know what I mean? Does he want us to succeed, Matt? Does he just want us to fail? It's a legit question. No, I think what I'm hearing is that you are saying that your husband is completely unsupportive of this show. (laughs) That's what I'm hearing. I mean, that's kind of the way I have taken the comments. Yes. Okay. We're going to put a pin in that, but maybe, just maybe, we're going to start a European beach video of you. Ah. Well, it'll be me topless and Mark and those Speedos that you talked about in the Mark Watterson episode seven, season one. Good job bringing it back. (laughs) I'm really, that was a deep cut for those of you who are like non-profiteers. Is that what we're calling (laughs) We need it. We need a name for our fan base. The non-profiteers. Is that going to catch on? Are they non-profiteers? I really. I want to be so full of myself that I want them to be like Matt followers. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Matt heads. Matt heads. <gasps> Matt heads. <laughs> Matt okay. heads. You know what? We need to put a poll out there on our website, on our podcast page about like possible names. So Jimmy Buffett's got the parrot heads. Do we have the non-profiteers? Then or the Matt heads? We're workshopping it. Yes. Yes. Here's the thing. Here's what I've learned. Here's what I've learned, Ashley. What I have learned is that I have a Twitter account that I completely forgot about. A thousand percent forgot about. I'm at the nonprofit guy. So what I think we need to do is you're driving, pull over, go to at the nonprofit guy. And I want you to tweet me what you think we should call you, the listeners of the show. Okay. So today's episode with Fran Riley at Newsleaders in Washington, D.C., and talking all about press, we're talking about journalism, we're talking about fake news, and at the nonprofit guy on Twitter. Boom. In fact, if we're being fair to Fran, she kind of is the one that said, yeah, Matt, time to get that up and running again. So she's kind of been nudging us in this direction. All right, fine. All right. Well, anything else, Ashley, that people should know before we go into Fran's amazing, fantastic, wonderful smart podcast. You've said it all, Matt. I'll remember that. So hi, Fran Riley. How are you? Matt, how are you? It's so good to see you. Yeah, I know. It's been since March. or Yeah, no, actually February, since February pre-COVID. Oh, yeah. We were pre-COVID, man. You and me were were definitely back in those days. And then I started here in May, just as it was all sort of happening. I I guess I I accepted in March and I don't know, for some reason I started in May. I don't, I don't recall. It's just a blur. It's a blur, man. 
I don't know what happened between March and now. I don't even know what day it is. But what I do know <laughs> is that you are the executive director of News Leaders Association, which is based in Washington, D.C. And you and I met at, where is it? Where did we, where was the interview? It was at NPR, right? NPR. In Washington, NPR. Yeah, yeah. And it was so much fun to do the interview. And it was so much fun to Suzanne, one of my colleagues and I flew out to Washington, D.C. pre-pandemic, but we all knew shit was going on. And that was probably the last time I did anything outside of my house here in L.A. So yeah, it was Martin Luther King weekend. That Yeah, yeah, that was that weekend. And I never did move to D.C. because of COVID. So I'm still rattling around in my apartment here in New York, but looking forward to getting there once we're allowed to be out and about. 2025. So so before we start, because this is a happy hour and you are on the East Coast, so we're doing this early. So I just want everybody to know it's 2.12 here in LA and I am going to have a cocktail. So first, what are you drinking, my friend? I'm just drinking a light white wine. Usually I wouldn't be drinking white wine this time of year. It's cold. It's dark here. It's no eat. So I know it's a red wine day, but for whatever reason, I just felt like something a little light and white. It's a Hungarian wine that was you know, the guy in the shop said was good. Listen, it's COVID. You can do anything you want. I there am... are no rules, Matt. All the yeah. rules are, are gone. So no. we don't have to worry. I am pouring myself a gin and tonic. And I felt like, you know, two o'clock. It's a two o'clock drink. <laughs> it is. It's totally. And, uh, Put lime in there. It's kind of got vitamins. Cheers, cheers to you. Happy Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Let's see how much work I can do after this. I have to work on budgets tonight. <laughs> That's no fun. Well, for the first of all, I wanted to have everybody understand News Leaders Association and what you guys do. We were hired to do the search to find you. Yes. And I had never worked in journalism. There were a few nonprofits that we worked at that were in journalism, but it's not really our area of expertise. Mm-hmm. And it was so much fun. I had such a good time interviewing all kinds of journalists across the country. Unlike, I think, most nonprofit folks, you guys are just so connected and caring and folks who were like, yeah, I want the job, but also you should interview this person and this person and you never get that nonprofit. So if you want to tell just our listener, tell us a little bit about News Leaders Association. Sure. Yeah, I just would say just add really quickly that they are the nicest people, the board of News Leaders. And yes, the journalist community, they hold each other up and they do share sources and that sort of thing. And that's really what helps to define the News Leaders Association, because it is and aspires to be an association that provides a network of support for journalists. That's really it at the end of the day, especially helping new and incoming journalists and mid-tier journalists develop leadership skills so that they, in fact, will be the news leaders of tomorrow. So all about news leadership, which entails skills that you don't necessarily learn as a reporter, right? So there are other things that you need to know in order to actually run a newsroom. And so we try to provide that. But mostly these days really mentoring and networking. People just, people want to talk to each other. Even though we can't convene in person, we can convene as we're doing here with or without cocktail on Zoom or online or in Slack. And we we help to set up those convenings and to, to get people connected to one another. So News Leaders Association was two legacy organizations that have been around for a million years that came together. One was APME and one was ASNE. These were all the top news editors in the country when newspapers and newsprint were like, were the thing, right? And so those numbers of membership dwindled over time as newspapers shut down, as things moved online, as there were literally just less managing editors in the country. So it made sense for the organizations to come together and they did as new News Leaders Association. So I came in to help them finish a strategic plan and to execute that plan. And it's really, again, all about 
what we can do to protect First Amendment rights, what we can do to support journalists, and what, what can we do so that newsrooms reflect the demographic of the communities they serve. So diversity and, and helping to create healthier DEI cultures in newsrooms is definitely in our bailiwick as well. First of all, I'm, like I said, I'm in love with this organization. All the journalists that we spoke to were awesome. I will tell you that with COVID and with being at home, I kind of miss newspapers. I loved waking up and there was something on the front door to look forward to, to open up the yeah. door and take it in and read it. And it was in my hand as opposed to now I wake up, the first thing I do is reach for my iPhone or, yeah. and it's status, horrible news. Like there's nothing good out there. Yeah. And so that's what I miss from the newspaper. At least we had like a calendar section, you had a food section, all these better things than what I'm listening to with everything's falling apart. So I miss that. Do you think that COVID is going to bring any of that back or it's just going to continue to go away? I think a lot's going to come back post-COVID in terms of all of that. We're all really focused. There's certainly a lot of news being reported. You're just you're talking about the distribution of that news. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. it's on Twitter, it's online. It's I read it on my iPad, a couple of newspapers. In terms of print, what's being decimated to the point where there's concern about whether or not some of these publications can come back are really at the local level. So I'm not worried about the New York Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe, and that sort of thing. But I am worried about your local news. I don't know if you if you subscribe to a local newspaper, but they are hurting because that revenue model without having the print advertising has really been affected and not having subscriptions. So that's a concern. But you know, I think that the reporting itself remains stellar. The importance of having free press. Has it ever been more important? I mean, literally, as we've come out of this year, my God, people's eyes should be open to how important it is that we have reporters on the ground to see and report on this stuff. So all of that, that part makes me helpful. The business models are concerning. And I'm just happy to hear that you read print in I, your new well, I, print. I, I yeah. do, and I miss print. Like, I, I, I know it's gone. I'm, I got... It's, it'll come back. There'll, there'll be print that will come back. That's not gone forever. So why aren't you getting your newspaper anymore on the front step? We just stopped. We stopped ordering it. I mean, after a while. Well, then you did that. That was you. Know. you. I know. No, actually, you That's know what? No. My husband. Want to blame my husband on that one? He stopped ordering it. I guess okay. uh, I could do more and I could do it, but he was like, "We're not reading it, so we're not doing it." Uh, he's like, "You're okay. always on your phone." But I, I, you're right, and it's a terrible thing. And it actually just reminded me when we're done with this, I'm going to get it back because I just come home every day. So like one thing to look forward to, aside from all the packages that we're buying. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I told my two sons that I was first Christmas this year, I was going to give them subscriptions to a local newspaper of their choice. My son in Portland, Oregon chose Street Roots, I think it's called. It's a publication really for the homeless and about the homeless and what's going on in Portland. And my other son wanted me to contribute to ProPublica. And they're reporting. So I raised good sons. You did. So I do want to know a little bit about journalism, because especially in COVID, I think a lot of things have changed. So what I mean, obviously, print's going away and a lot of newsrooms are shutting down for budget reasons. But at least for this year, in terms of COVID, what are some things that that journalists have had to change or adapt? Well, one thing that I think I don't know if people appreciate enough is that reporters are frontline, you know, workers, really, the ones who are out on the street. So not not the executives or not the people who are back in the office. 
office. And nobody's in an office, by the way. Everybody's working remotely. So that newsroom hubs that add so much to the culture of a newsroom are also busted up. So they're also at home working in their sweatpants. By the way, I'm not wearing sweatpants right now. I want you to know I'm actually wearing jeans for you. What about like press conferences? And things? I mean, people are going out. Like, I mean, reporters are still going out. Reporters are still going out and reporters are at risk. And they always did. There was never, it never stopped. Newsrooms have had to contend with how to keep reporters safe. So for me, you know, I'm not a journalist. The reason that NLA hired me was because I come more from a strategy and business background out of publishing and marketing, but I always wanted to be a journalist. Lois Lane, and she was always my hero as a kid growing up, you know, looking at the comics. But yeah, so I I work with journalists. I work for journalists and I can't be prouder really of the work and what we're doing. Journalism to me, you know, is totally different as a 40 something year old than journalism is somebody coming up, right? Like it was, you're in the room and you're creating a paper and you're printing it up and it's going to folks and it's obviously changed, right? A lot, but moving forward, like, so a kid graduates college and wants to be a journalist. What does the field look like for, for her? One thing that's different now than back in the day is that the positions in newsrooms have changed in that social media is an area in which you see younger people coming into. So being part of the social media team and getting that kind of audience development going, newsroom positions now have really expanded into audience development and ways in which, and really more audience engagement, how to keep readers on your site, how to renew them, all of that sort of thing. So there's that. There's definitely less jobs, but that doesn't mean that there aren't jobs. And just like in the old days, you want to get a byline. So you want to be writing, you want to be doing reporting and writing. I've even at nonprofits brought in right from college paid interns who start in social media. And more than once they've turned into beat reporters, things open up, they're able to kind of build their careers that way. So that's one thing that I'm seeing. Can you make money in journalism at this point? Do you mean personally or? Yes, personally, you go in. Yes, exactly. Yes. Or do no, you, have do you... To marry, you have to marry Rich and call it a day? <laughs> yeah, you can make a living. Sure. Many, many people do. It's not Wall Street. Right. You know, and there aren't big bonuses at the end of the day and all of that. But that's what I miss any mission-driven enterprise is about. Your measurements of success and satisfaction are a little different, but not that different. I mean... The market rates for salaries in this nonprofit journalism area don't look all that much different than in some for-profit places I've worked. They probably tap out a little lower, maybe a lot lower, but generally there's some comparability. Okay. And so, you know, the, the thing that I think is really interesting, and this is what I was learning when we were doing the search for you, is just the different markets at this point, right? So media now, you know, you could just create something online and be a journalist and people read it and they think it's fact and it may not be right. So for us at home and we are all online and all going on Google and getting whatever articles we're getting, how do we know? I mean, I, I'm not trying to say fake news because I hate that expression. No, it's but a how really do we know? How do we know yeah. what we're reading? Yeah. There's a couple of organizations, nonprofit organizations who have, that have launched in the past few years that are about how to educate consumers around 
Trusting News. And one of them is called Trusting News. And the other one is called the Trusting News Project. And there are things that they've identified through surveys and other research. Things like when you go on to something that looks like a news site in your community, you should check to see who's on the masthead. Like who is writing this? Are there bylines with those articles? In other words, is the reporter's name attached to that article? Do they give readers an opportunity to engage with them online? Can you comment? Can you ask questions? There are indicators like like that. Um, There's this thing that's happening now that I find really, really scary, which is that there are local papers online now that look like your local paper because they've got a little bit of community stuff in it, but they're all owned by like these for-profit conglomerates that are pay for play. You know about those? So you can hire them to write an article about your favorite candidate, but it doesn't look like that. They don't say that this right. is sponsored by whoever. And that's that's very scary. So when you do bring up a site or print, look for who's publishing this. How many reporters do they have? Who is this reporter? And you can just dig dig a little deeper to see if it's trustworthy. I know. I get into argument with my friends, kids, or my nephews, nieces, and they're just convinced that certain things are true when they're not true. I don't really know how you fight that after a while. What was the movie that was on Netflix about like being on our phones too much? So terrible. It's such a scary show. Like, you know, like we were on our phones too much and so they're controlling our lives. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. Social something. Yeah, that scared me a little. Right. And that's what I think in terms of news outlets now. That's what I'm saying. I miss the good old days where like, yeah, okay, you were reading somebody's opinion in a LA Times or New York Times, but at least it was, I feel like, somewhat more truthful than where we are now. Honest. Well, what what it was, was that it was identified as an opinion piece. That you knew what it was. You knew if it was fact or someone's opinion. And that's what's getting blurrier now. Yes, I think is what you're saying. When your nieces and nephews or your kids' friends or whoever insists something is fact, help them peel it back. How do you know? What's the source of that fact? Yeah, my opinion is fact is not not the way this works, but I feel like that's where we're going. In this last year, aside from COVID and the president and the election, was there a story that came out that like you feel like people should know? Like some kind of like, I don't know, feel good story or something that maybe people didn't pay attention to that was like a cool story that you were like, I'm glad I know that or I should tell people about that. Well, there's so many of them that you always have to do with people helping people, right? Those things are always buried in there somewhere. But it always does come back to somebody doing something for someone else. And they're out there. There are many of those stories, especially this year. So many of those stories this year uh, here in New York. I mean, just the food banks and even in my own little town, setting up food kitchens and food banks and setting up a ride system for elderly to be able to go to the doctor. And these are all volunteers. These are people who just want to do good things. And by the way, that's the stuff that I miss when I'm looking at the different news sites in the morning and it's nothing feel good. It's all just the world's ending. After I saw that movie you were talking about, I logged out of Twitter. So now anytime I have to go into Twitter, I have to log back in and I have a two-way verification thing. So it's like a drag. And it's great because I was just on it way too much and just constant drumbeat of terrible things. I'm still on it 50 times a day, but it's not 150 times a day. So I've got a little breathing room. I've been on Twitter probably like in a year. I'm the nonprofit guy. Oh, you are? Oh, I'm still going to follow you. It's a great handle, but I don't, I literally haven't gone maybe like a year or two. So there's nothing to follow. You have to put these podcasts on there. That's how you're going to build traffic. That's a good idea. I should put these on my Twitter podcast. Yeah. That's cool. You know what? I've got a producer, Ashley, and she is lazy. So like, that's her job, right? If it's not out there on Twitter, that's on Ashley. She'll listen to this. She'll hear it. She'll know. Okay, good. Come on, right. Ashley. 
Come on, Ashley, get your shit together. But I just, I miss those feel-good stories. And I think that honestly, that's what I like about Instagram and also TikTok because it's just... (laughs) Silliness. (laughs) Yeah, it's silliness. And that's, you know, I miss those stories. So I want people to know about you. You said you always wanted to be a journalist. You worked for the paper in high school. Like, how did you get into this world? All right. So I did want to be a journalist when I was young. I wanted to be in order of things, a nun, a baker, and then a journalist by the time I was 10. Nun? A baker or a journalist? A nun? No, no, this was a progression thing. Of course, you want to be a nun when you're six years old in St. John Vianney, because that's who you saw. Then a baker by the time I, I grew up. But then a journalist, once I could read the comics and the daily news and Sunday mornings in the Bronx. Remember Lois Lane, man? She always had a nice suit on. She was always running. She had that pen. It's like she just, she had power. And yeah, um, the last time that you were running with a pen in your hand? This morning, actually. Okay. <laughs> but no, no. And I also just am a word person. You know, I was just a big reader and a word person. And I thought that I would write. And I wound up in just a different career path. And I got a job at the Atlantic Monthly magazine. I was very young. I was like 19 or 20. And I would have taken anything. It's the Atlantic Monthly. It was in circulation, circulation marketing. It could have been, you know, in the mailroom and I would have taken it, but it happened to be in circulation and I just worked really hard and I had this propensity for numbers. I mean, I was terrible at math in school, but for some reason I was able to you know, turn that on and then just work my way up through the magazine business side of things. And uh, my first nonprofit job was after the Atlantic two years, I was recruited to Mother Jones magazine out in San Francisco. Oh, cool. Boston. So Mother Jones was a nonprofit. And so there, I really learned a lot about fundraising because circulation and fundraising in terms of direct marketing back in the day when you were actually mailing packages and all of that run out of that was me. So I, I did all of that. So whether I was asking you to subscribe or asking you to donate or whatever, it was just this big machine of please give me your money. And that was my first nonprofit job. But I have threaded in between for-profit and nonprofit my entire career. I don't see a lot of difference because I've always worked in mission-driven organizations. So the nonprofit to for-profit is often a business model difference, but in terms of day-to-day and what drives you and what you're aiming for, it's very similar between the two, in my experience. Do you think that you would maybe after this become a journalist? Why do you say that? I mean, I'm really like well old now, but I got to tell you, Matt, just between you and me, and it's kind of a secret, I went back to school for my master's in writing. Oh, cool. And I graduate next month. I did come full circle and I did do a thesis around journalism and my worlds are colliding. So it's all kind of like written in the stars in a way in that I'm in this job, which really builds on my business career and I can kind of give back, but I've also begun to write. I love Um, that. And by the way, it's totally between you and me because, you know, we have one or two listeners, so I wouldn't (laughs) worry about it. My mom is one of them and she's like having a hard time even figuring out where the podcast uh, app is on her phone. So (laughs) you are, your secret is safe with us. Do you think you're a good writer? Yes. Okay. And was that all your life or did you actually have to learn how to be a good writer? I was always a good writer. It's hard for me to say this. It's very hard to acknowledge your gifts, right? To me, what I've learned is that your gift is whatever it is that makes you feel it's a timeless experience. And writing was always that for me. Big, new, wonderful job presented itself to me. I would be like, oh, should I do that? Or should I go write? And I never went to write. I always did the job. And now I'm, um, I'm still doing the job, but the worlds have collided. Remember, like in school, like the first report that you wrote that you can remember what it was about that you were proud of or that you enjoyed writing about? 
Yeah, I remember two things. I remember my first fiction short story, and I remember my first nonfiction story. My nonfiction story was in high school. It's just so ridiculous now. I actually still have it because I wrote about Russia and the sports system in Russia. And basically, my paper was about how the young pioneers and with all of the support they give to their young people around sports, that really they were they were a pretty good country. They were okay. And now I look at that and I'm like, oh my god! Like, <laughs> and I got a friggin' A plus on that. It was social studies. I'm like, come on, Mr. Yubin, how could you possibly have given me an A plus on that? Because I miss what was really going on under underneath all of that. And my first fiction story, I was probably 10. And it, it was a story about a little boy in Vietnam running from his village that was set on fire and just sort of his journey. How did that, at a 10-year-old kid, how did you come I, up with I, that I story? Because I think it was back to the Vietnam War days, you know, but it was just, just past that. And so that was still somehow in the ecosystem. And I must have picked up on it somehow. It's just a sad story for a 10-year-old. That's a sad story. <laughs> Do you still have it? Yes. You do. That's cool. That's really cool. I am always really impressed with anybody who's a good writer. I think I am the worst writer on the face of the planet. You should see my emails are like one sentence emails. I mean, I'm a terrible writer. And I'm always so impressed with anybody who is. I remember in college, I took an English, a few English classes, but I remember this one class, all I wanted was just to ace it. Like it was a writing class. And every time I had to write something that I was proud of, my professor would give me a B plus. I maybe once got an A minus, but every time it was a B plus. And that was like the, that was the best I ever was as a writer. So now I'm like a, a D student. Thing. That's one person's view of something that was formulated in a, in a classroom. That's nothing to do with being a good writer and not a good writer. I only said that I was a good writer because it brings me joy. It makes me happy to do. And I'm happy to actually start doing it more. It's work. Just like anything else, it's work. Yes, it is just one professor's opinion on my writing, but it's true. I, I love to read, but I am the world's worst writer. Even just to put like an interesting email together, I'm like, Jesus, I suck at this. Turn off that voice. You're wrong about that. <sighs> well, thank you. But you know what? I'll tell you what. I'll send you something that I wrote, and then you can write me back and be like, oh, my God, I was totally wrong. You are terrible at writing. <laughs> really. Okay, so let's go back to that that kid in college who's graduating. I want to get into journalism, but there are other routes. There are other things to do. There are nonprofits. There are newsrooms. There are management. There's other things to do, right? And by the way, the one thing that you said that I think is really important that I think people don't hear enough is that you said you would you would have taken any job. You would have taken a job in the newsroom. You'd have taken any job. And I think that that's something that's missing as well in this generation. They're not they're not interested in taking just any job, but I think you have to. So. To go back to that, what would be three things that I should be looking at? As a kid coming out of school with a journalism degree, is that what As you're saying? As a kid coming out of school wanting to get into journalism. Internships, I mean, I know they're comp competitive. Try to just apply to as many of them as possible. And be persistent. See, the thing is, just like going for a job, it always shocks me how many candidates don't follow up. So they just send in one thing and then you never hear from them again. I've almost never hired anyone that didn't follow up and say, just checking in. I applied on Tuesday, you know, February 11th. I'm still interested, you know, can you tell me the status of this job? So same thing with internships. With so many things, it's so much better to have a personal connection or a network. So try to find those networks. 
really try to find those networks. And if you're coming out of college, you have networks. You, your professors have networks. Your people at your paper have networks. Your school paper has networks. These are your networks. You've got to leverage them. I would. That's the first thing I would do, just like in fundraising, right? You start with your network. It's the same thing with jobs. So think differently about who your network is. It's not just your roommate. It's not just your journalism teacher. Think broader within your particular network. Go introduce yourself. Talk about what it is you're looking for. Volunteer. Really pump your network. Obviously, you know, a big part of what we do is recruiting. And I'm always shocked. I'm shocked at when folks who are interviewing for executive director jobs or fundraising jobs don't follow up. They don't actually say, hey, you know, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for interviewing me. I loved it. This is, you know, I'd love the job and, you know, whatever, just thank you. And so I think that is probably the most important piece of advice for any kid coming out of college. If you are interviewing, first of all, use your network. Anybody you know, yes. like use them to give you a good reference, a good whatever, but also a thousand percent follow up. You don't just show right. up. You have to follow up. And it, I'm the same uh, way. And the thing too is as a journalism student, research is an important skill set in journalism. So research, that network research who you should be talking to and just keep plugging away at that. And you might have to take a different job while you're waiting to break into the other side, but- Don't be yeah. afraid to take a job that is not your ideal job because you yeah. never know, right? You never, you never know. know. You never know. So somebody wants to get into journalism. What is so exciting about it? What is great about being a journalist? Oh my God. First of all, I mean, holding people to account. Many reporters see themselves in a service job. It's about holding people accountable. It's really about helping people. I see it in a lot of ways. I don't mean to be too Pollyannish about it, but if you don't have the information, how do you make a decision? If you don't have information, how do you vote? How do you how do you do anything, right? And that's what reporters do. So they are your eyes and ears. They're going to they're gonna give you the information you need to know what's going on. And they're going to hold truth to power. So it really is a mission. You're not just punching the clock. You really are there because you care. I love that. The thing to me that's so exciting about journalism is that it's like it's 24-7. You can yeah. like have a story right now that you got to go do and to just get it out there and have people read about it. It's unlike anything else. There's an inner journalist writer in you. Your eyes are lighting up or is that, <laughs> are you on your second gin and tonic? No, I'm still on my first gin and tonic. I, I think there's something in there that you want to, you want to get out and make a connection. Well, that's why we're doing this. I like the one-on-one. -on -one. I like questions. I like answers. I like getting to know people. That's a big part of journalism. And, and not just the journalist getting to know people, but then being able to tell the reader about that, I think is really exactly. exciting. Yes, and, telling stories, the narrative, really important. And that's what I think is also exciting about this. I mean, should people actually start listening and we don't cancel this halfway through next year, is that people can really learn about folks like you. And I think that that's really important, especially if this is the world that they want to get in. So in terms of a drawback, as you're drinking your wine, what would you say that would be, you know, that, that people should know about that really just aren't that glamorous, the hard parts about journalism? Again, not a journalist. I know, yeah, but you, you, you work know, with a lot of them. Yes, absolutely. Oh my God, they're under attack. All right, so imagine that. Yes, at the presidential level, to be defined as an enemy of the people because of the job that you do. Okay, so that's that's one layer. But then just in your own community. So imagine you're you're sitting in the bleachers at your kid's baseball game and the guy next to you recognizes you from your byline and doesn't like what you wrote. Right now, in the, with the contraction of the news industry, there's so much uncertainty about your employment. You might have a job today, but are you going to have it next year? That's the case in a lot of industries. 
It's just right now in journalism, it's, it's, it's acute. It's acute and it's, it's terrible. I want to see it come through to the other side. And that's why I'm in this position. That's why I'm doing this work. We've got to get to the other side of where we are. Newsrooms got to figure out the new models. We've got to figure out how to keep them sustainable. We have to figure out how we can hire all these smart new people coming out of journalism school who are going to follow up you know, right. if they you. listen to this podcast. And yes remember to send that second email, that follow-up email. I think it's really interesting that you were talking about fundraising for media and fundraising for journalism. And I'm curious because one of the things that I love to do is ask people for money. I'm good at it. I've always been good at it. It's what I like to do. And I am sure that that's not always something that you've necessarily enjoyed, but also it's hard to ask for money for certain causes. So can you talk to us a little bit and maybe the person who's listening who wants to get into running a nonprofit, what it was like for you to learn about fundraising and now how comfortable are you with it? I'm never going to be one of those people like you who likes to ask for money, but I am definitely someone who has learned that if you don't ask, you don't get. And to be successful in fundraising or in journalism that needs funds, you have to get really comfortable with asking. Going way back, I was 10 years old and almost got kicked out of Girl Scouts because I wouldn't ask my mother for the quarter a week to pay for dues. And so it built up over a really long time. And then the troop leader like knocked on my door one day and was like talking to my mother in private. And she was like, I didn't know you owed $57 or whatever it was. I couldn't ask for money. But now, because I know that if you don't ask, you don't get. I am able to start by trying to understand what the philanthropist's goals are. Where are they coming from? What do they want to give to you? What are their passions? And aligning what our mission is in journalism or any nonprofit to what it is that they aspire to have impact on and making those connections. And that's what it is. You know, it's making the connection between the person who has the capacity and the organizations that need the funds and figure out just where that alignment is. So you start with your networks, just like everything else. You start with who's close into you. Uh, not necessarily asking like grandpa and your cousin for money, but just, just a little bit of a broader networks of who's interested in this thing that you're interested in and who do they know? And who does that person know? And really just starting with those networks and then building out from there. So I've learned how to do that. And I've also found that at the end of the day, people give to people. Even if it's an organization that you're representing, they are in fact investing in you. And so those relationships are really important. And sometimes it takes years to build them and it's worth the time. And so just like in any other nonprofit, journalism is the same. And there are people out there that, be that believe in First Amendment rights, that want journalism to thrive, um, or again, have different issue-related passions, whether it's the environment or such, and know that journalism and journalists keep those issues alive in the public and the importance of keeping that going. A lot of people want to be in, an executive director or CEO of a nonprofit. And I think the fundraising piece is so vital. So you are running a nonprofit. You are the executive director of a nonprofit. Yes. I realize that it's still not as comfortable or not as easy as it is for me. But how can somebody get to that point where they are finally like, yes, I'm going to fundraise. Yes, I understand the importance. Yes, I can, I'm comfortable to do it. How did you finally get to that point? One, because the business would go out of business unless one did. So there is that sort of thing, you know, but mostly it's really about, for me, I had to find my comfort level 
by using a lot of the skills, weirdly, that a journalist would have, right? You have to do research. You have to ask questions and find out what the person on the other side of the, that equation, the philanthropy equation, is looking for, what they want to donate to. And then it's creating a story about how their contribution will impact the issue that they are, in fact, interested in focusing on and improving. It's a muscle. In a, like a lot of other things, you have to build up the muscle to be able to hear no and be okay with it. Because now no to me is nothing. No to me is a total challenge. It's like, oh, that's so great. Yeah, I'm going to totally get that. <laughs> There's no way that a year from now, we're not going to be working together. So it's all those sorts of things too. Again, those same skills as a marketer, just in terms of, again, putting things out there, seeing what works, seeing what messaging works, what doesn't work, refining, going back out again. But mostly it is that comfort um, on the one-to-one level of being able to make the ask. And I find that I realize in what a privileged position I am in to give money away when I have it, like to get money and to put it into a product that is helping other people is a very privileged position to be in. When I'm making an ask, I'm in that position. I'm not in a position of, I'm poor, please help me. It's not like that. It's like we're all in this bigger mission and how can we solve this together? I love that. I don't think I've ever heard that quite so eloquently that yes, you're right. You are in the position of privilege where I can ask you for a donation. I think that's so important. really feels that way. Yeah. And I think anybody who gets into nonprofit, anybody who wants to get into management of a nonprofit, they have to start looking at fundraising, become more comfortable with it, yes. and then yeah, be able to make an ask. Because if you're not passionate, if you don't care and you don't want to make a donation, then your donor is not going to want to make a donation. Exactly. So you're right. That is really important. So just a few questions that I feel like people should know. So in terms of your job, in terms of what you do at Newsleader, what makes you happiest? What makes me happy is, I'll tell you, from a again, from a nonprofit sort of fundraising standpoint, I mean, I'm not there out there very much fundraising just yet, although I am beginning to um, make connections between um, what we can provide and what a potential philanthropy organization or your person wants to give to. And so making those connections makes me friggin' happy because we can make stuff happen. So I mentioned before that we're working a lot on diversity, helping newsrooms create healthier, diverse DEI cultures, but also, you know, just changing the demographics in our newsrooms across the country so that the staff better reflects the demographics of the community they're covering. I mean, you look at what happened this summer, the um, George Floyd and the protests and, you know, just was, that's no surprise to me that that would happen in terms of the protests. It's like a powder keg. And so now when I go out to potential funders and talk about helping newsrooms, giving them the tools and resources they need to create more diverse cultures, it makes me happy because there are those who want to fund that. And then I've got programs that they can fund. And I mean, I'm a nerd that way. But yes, that makes me happy. I like that. Why should we, as listeners to this show, however many there are, why should we want to donate to news leaders? Why should we care about making donations to the future of journalism? Honestly, no matter what issue is important to you, whether it's the environment, whether it's, you know, homelessness, whether it's food insecurity, whatever it is, none of it will improve unless light is shed on it. And that's the power of journalism. So the power of philanthropy is to 
it shed light on, on all of these issues. So if there's someone who's interested in the environment, how do we really change things unless things are uncovered and stories are told in terms of what's happening? in the environment. That's journalism. And and you can just go down the list of really anything. And that's why. So when we learned, when I learned about news leaders, I don't think that people just like me or anybody else really understand the need to donate to organizations like yours. I just don't think we get it. I think that we expect journalists are out there and they're making a living right. and we're paying for it through whatever the advertising or, or spending okay. money on whatever, but it isn't that easy. So I do think that that's important for people to understand that we should be donating to organizations like yours who are in support of the press. They're local newsrooms, really, wherever you live. You're so right. There were there have been studies been d- done by Pew Foundation and Knight Foundation that, and others that show that people don't understand. They think that their local news is profitable or that they're fine. So there's a real disconnect in that way. I hope that major philanthropists, those of real means, start to look at journalism the way they once looked at like libraries or the ballet or yeah. other cultural institutions that need to be funded. Journalism's the same way. And then for everyday folks like you and me in our communities to be thinking about their local paper the same way we would be buying anything else that we buy every day or every week that needs to be funded. I think that's really important. And by the way, when we're done, I'm totally going yeah. online. I'm going to get that newspaper delivery again. Send me a picture of it. I'm I want to see that. I'm embarrassed for myself. So <laughs> not to end on like a negative, let's end on a positive. So right. the future of journalism, the future of news, the future of getting information out there. What gets you excited about that? Come on, let's go back to that person graduating from college, right? Who wants to get into journalism. That makes me excited. What are the things that they can create? What are the things that they can come up? There's another level out there that, that we don't even know yet in terms of what they can figure out. And the core value of our democracy is a free press. I mean, going into journalism, you're at the center of our constitutional values. And this year... If people didn't see firsthand how fragile that democracy is, they weren't looking because for those who were looking, this is a scary time. And one of the things that will continue to strengthen our wonderful democracy is journalism and a free press and First Amendment rights. And that's why our forefathers wrote that in as a First Amendment. So on a positive note, our consciousness got raised this year in that how fragile it is. And we have to fund it and we have to pay attention to it. And we have to bring those smart people out of journalism school into into these newsrooms. And part of NLA, part of our mission is to help them do that. I love that. And I can hear your passion for that. That makes me happy. Yeah, Yeah, I'm very passionate about it. So if we are out there and somebody says something about journalism or media or whatever it is, what would you want the one listener we have left to take away from this interview, from this podcast? What do you want that person to really walk away with. I want them to think about and remember how their local paper, how much that actually makes them part of the community, even though they don't really realize it, and to donate to that. I want them to appreciate the value and the importance of journalism to our democracy. That's a real, real thing. No matter what side of the aisle you're on, it's really important that this is an industry that survive and come through even stronger. I love that. All right, my friend, here's what I want. I want us to be able to meet up in Washington, D.C. again very soon. Absolutely. Like enjoy some really good wine and food at some restaurant where we can eat indoors. Yes. And I can fly and just be able to toast the fact that we made it through this the pandemic. time's going to come. It really is. It I cannot come, wait. So. I cannot wait. And that the future of journalism 
is strong and people care and they give. Yeah. So I really appreciate this. Thank you so much for joining me. Great yeah. to see you. Thank you. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. So can I tell you why I'm so happy that we are doing podcasts and not videos? Why? I did Botox last week and it still hasn't really formed yet. So I can still move my face. So I just don't want anybody to see any emotion on my face. Matt, we promised our poor listeners that we would get off your three topics and Botox was one of them. You can no longer talk about Botox, the shelter you ran in New York, and your dog psychic. These are like now on the taboo topic list. But the Botox is, the Botox is maybe it's seeping into my brain. Is that what it, it could be the chip. It could be the chip in my arm from the vaccine. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I will stop talking about the Botox. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you for the reminder. And I want to tell you something that is, are you ready? Are you sitting down? I'm ready. I'm sitting. Yeah. I hope everybody's sitting down right now, wherever you're listening. If you're in the car, pull over. I don't want you to get too excited. I'm peeing in my pants as we're, as we're sitting here. I'm peeing in my pants. Are you wearing pants? <laughs> I'm peeing on the seat, okay? I'm peeing on the seat. I'm peeing directly on the seat. Thanks, Ashley. I, you ready? Ready. I got us our very first advertisement for the next podcast. No way. This is where I, in edit, in post, I go and I put like sound effects underneath with like champagne corks popping. And that's amazing, Matt. I it's not a very, it's not the reaction I was expecting from you. I thought you'd be jumping up and down and more, a little more excited than that. I'm topless again. <laughs> <laughs> what more, what more do you want from me? Matt, I have stripped down to nothing in excitement and apparently it's just not enough for you. <laughs> well, very exciting. We have our first advertisement. That actually means that people are listening to this show. I will tell you, I got an email from a listener that I didn't even know, who was like, hey, good job. I'm really proud of the show. What? Someone you didn't even know and you didn't even pay to say anything did that? Somebody, somebody I didn't know and I didn't pay sent me an email out of the blue and was like, hey, by the way, thank you. This is a great show. That is awesome. That is worth, now I am legitimately removing my top. It is coming off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it. I mean, I'm not putting on pants. I feel like, honestly, actually, I feel like if we keep playing our cards right, we might get to like 18 listeners, which in the Jewish religion is a very good number. Okay, 18. I don't know, lofty goals, Matt. Hashtag lofty goals. Hashtag 18 listeners. All right, well, we will have that advertisement in two weeks. So everybody who's listening, pay attention two weeks from now, get ready. It's going to be a real exciting commercial. I don't know what the jingle is going to be. Do, do people even say jingles? Is that a word anymore? I think it is, but I'm your age. So what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to ask a younger audience. <laughs> oh, that reminds me. Don't we have a Twitter, like something going on on Twitter about we fans? We do. We do, Matt. And just like we said in the intro, it is now happening. If you go to at the nonprofit guy, there is now a poll that will ask you to vote for your favorite groupie name for our nonprofit on the rocks fans. You can find the poll there and vote and let us know what you think the nonprofit on the rocks groupie fan name should be. I'm actually a little surprised, Ashley, that you didn't put like an Ashley fan, like like something to do with Ashley sucks or just something like Ashley's boobs. I don't know, something. Ashley centered. You know, Matt, for me, it's the long game. Like I am slowly going to take over the show, but it's very slow. 
And I feel like that move would just be too fast. I got it. I appreciate that. You're just wearing me down. Little by little. Yeah, at the beginning, we didn't have an intro and we just had an outro. And now we've got an intro. And I think what's going to end up happening is you're going to take over the middle of the show too and make that commercial yours. <laughs> the commercials are going to get longer and longer and there'll be me talking. Yeah, you're on to it, Matt. I better change my strategy because you have now figured it out. You know, I'm just that smart. Well, so two weeks, wait for that show. You're going to hear that advertisement, which is going to make me a whole $4 and keep Ashley employed for about another two hours. Ashley, are there any final words for our listeners who hopefully are still listening? We hope you're enjoying our show. We're certainly enjoying making it, if you can't tell. And do go to our website, envisionnonprofit.com. Let us know what you think. And again, at the nonprofit guy on Twitter, vote. <laughs>